We'll read this morning from Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the ground, and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh your hearts. After that you may pass by, inasmuch as you have come to your servant." They said, Do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, Here, in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah your wife shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child, since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you, according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were fifty righteous within the city, would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than fifty righteous. Would you destroy all the city for the lack of five? So he said, If I find there forty-five, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose there should be forty found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of forty. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. 
And he said, Indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of twenty. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose ten should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, this is an interesting passage of Scripture that we have to deal with this morning. It, it almost seems like two distinct episodes uh, are related in this chapter. The first section, which runs from verse 1 through verse 15, concerns the promise of a son to be born to Abraham and his wife Sarah. And then verse 16 through 33 relays this conversation that Abraham has uh, with God concerning the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah and any righteous people who may be found there. Two distinct issues, but they are tied together by verses 1 and verse 33. Verse 1 says, Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. Verse 33 concludes the chapter saying, So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So everything that happens in between those two verses is a part of the Lord's appearance to Abraham. But what do these two different things have to do with one another? Why did they happen in this manner? Why were they recorded for us? And and what is to be gained by our study of them? Well, one thing that we might notice is that the Genesis record in the last five chapters or so has been largely concerned with God's covenant with Abraham and the promise of a son, an heir, through whom the larger promise of the Messiah would be fulfilled. And we've seen that Abraham has had to wait a significant number of years for this promise to be kept. At the beginning of chapter 12, when God first called him and began to speak these promises to him, Abraham was 75 years old. In chapter 17, we found that he was now 99 years old. And by the time a child is conceived and born, Abraham will be 100 years old. That's 25 years of waiting. And it seems like the history is now rapidly approaching the birth of the promised son. But if we were to look ahead, we would see that Isaac won't be born until chapter 21. So, though a year or less uh, transpires between chapter 18 and chapter 21, there are some other events that the Lord has seen fit to record for us during that time frame. So chapter 18 serves to transition from the promise of the birth of Isaac to these other events, namely the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which we will see next week, Lord willing. So that's one reason why the Lord directed the events of this chapter to occur in the way they did. But beyond that, there's a theological reason as well. There is a doctrine being established here in chapter 18 that will be important for the remainder of biblical history and for our own understanding of God and our relationship with him. 
So I want to look at each of these two uh, sections of the chapter on their own and then at the end tie them together and look at the larger theological connection uh, that is binding them together into one episode. The first section, as I said, runs from verse 1 through verse 15 and concerns the promise of the birth of Isaac. Now, this is a promise that has been made before. Uh, It's been specified that Sarah would have a son and that they would name him Isaac. But here, the promise is reaffirmed in a unique way. First, we're told that the Lord appeared to Abraham in verse 1. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So it's a hot day. Abraham is sitting in the shade in the door of his tent under the trees when God makes an appearance. Now this is important because God appears as three men who are traveling. Verse 2, so he lifted his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. So there sits Abraham in the door of his tent on a hot day, resting in the shade, when he looks up and he sees these three men coming toward him. He offers them hospitality. On a hot day, traveling on foot, he offers to have their feet washed, which would be refreshing. It's something that was a custom in that culture. He offers them food to refresh their hearts. But notice the details here. It is the Lord who appears, and there are three men uh, in appearance. And when Abraham speaks to them, he uses the singular in verse 3. So he seems to be addressing one of them as preeminent. But then in verse 4, he switches back to the plural, and the plural is retained through verse 9. Now, we're not told in the text if these three men are angels, or if one of them is a theophany, that is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ, there are various opinions regarding this and good arguments to be made either view. But what is clear is that the Lord has appeared to Abraham, and these three men represent to Abraham the presence of Almighty God with him. John Salehammer in his commentary says, The author has so arranged the singular and plural forms that the three men always represent God's presence and can be identified with his presence, but at the same time remain clearly distinct from God himself. So it is God who is said to appear, and Abraham sees these three men. So in some way, these three men represent the presence of God to him. But... They have the appearance of men, and God is not a man. So they are not uh, God himself, but they are some appearance of the Lord to Abraham. And I don't think we need to trouble ourselves over exactly what the identity of these three men is. The scripture doesn't seem that concerned with it. The important thing is, is that God is present. John Calvin once commented that the word of the Lord is so precious to himself that he would be regarded by us as present whenever he speaks through his ministers. 
And if that is true of the preaching of the word of God, how much more so should we consider God to be present when these three men speak the word of God directly to Abraham? And so Abraham prepares a meal for them. And after they have eaten, the text says in verse 9, Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, Here in the tent. So still the plural, they, they ask about Sarah. Abraham tells them she's here, she's in the tent, which means she is close at hand and can obviously, from what follows, hear their conversation. In verse 10, the text then switches from the plural to the singular, indicating that the Lord is speaking. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. So Sarah is listening just behind the guest and hears this pronouncement of the Lord. Verse 11 then comments on the current state of Abraham and Sarah and their health by way of explaining what is about to happen. It says in verse 11, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Now remember, Sarah was barren. To begin with, now she is old. She's past the age of childbearing. So how does Sarah respond to this pronouncement by God that she is to soon have a son? It says in verse 12, Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? Now if you'll remember, Abraham laughed in chapter 17 when he was first given this promise. And at the time, I told you that I did not believe that Abraham's laugh was sinful, that it was not a laugh of of doubting, but it was a laugh of joy at the wondrous promise that God had made to him. Sarah's laughter, however, is different. Her laughter is the laughter of disbelief. Verses 13 and 14 explain further what she was thinking and why she laughed. And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child, since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. So again, the Lord is speaking, and he says, Sarah laughed because she thought the promise was impossible. At this point, she was barren. Now she is old. She does not believe that God can make this happen. Her tent has become Doubting Castle. She didn't think God could make good on his word. And now her lack of faith has been exposed. So what does she do? Well, she does what Adam and Eve did in the garden, what we all do. She tried to hide her sin in verse 15. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. So she tries to cover her lack of faith, her sinful disbelief and laughter with another sin. She lies about it, saying that she didn't do it. And of course, the Lord calls her on this sin too. The text says that she told this lie because she was afraid. Well, what was she afraid of? Remember, Adam and Eve hid themselves among the trees of the garden because they were afraid. What were they afraid of? They were afraid of having their sin exposed. And that is exactly what Sarah is afraid of as well. She's afraid of having her sin exposed and brought to light her lack of faith, her laughter at the pronouncement of the Lord. 
We all share that fear, don't we? We don't like others to know our sin. We want to keep it hidden. We don't want it exposed. And so we're apt to cover it and to hide it, just as Sarah attempted to do. So that's the sum of the the events that transpire here in the first episode of chapter 18. But there are a few things worth noting here. Opinions vary regarding just what Abraham knew or suspected concerning these three men. I am of the opinion that he knew, somehow discerned right from the start, that these men represented the presence of God with visiting him. Some commentators think not, saying that he was just showing hospitality, entertaining angels unaware. But there's a note of urgency in his hospitality that strikes me as unusual. When he first saw the men in verse 2, he ran to greet them. He hurried into the tent to give Sarah instructions for preparing bread in verse 6 and told her to do it quickly. Then he ran to the herd in verse 7 to get a calf and hastened to prepare it. That's a lot of hurrying, more, I think, than would be normal for hospitality. I think there is an urgency brought about by a discernment of the import of this guest who has come to visit. Also, when he greets the men, he bows himself to the ground. Now, it may be common in that culture uh, to bow to a guest, but to bow to the ground indicates a posture of humility before a superior. When he speaks, he says, my Lord, a title of reverence. And then he uses language of finding favor in his sight, which previously we've seen in the scriptural record when we were told that Noah found favor in the Lord's sight. He calls himself a servant, and he stood by while they ate as a servant waiting on his master. And there's another matter that indicates Abraham knew who he was entertaining. If three men showed up at your front door wanting a meal, and you invited them in and you fed them, and they started asking about your wife by name, wouldn't you wonder how they knew her name? Wouldn't you wonder, how do they know what my wife's name is? And when the Lord speaks and exposes Sarah's sin, Sarah denies it, but Abraham doesn't question. He doesn't question the men on, well, how would you know that she laughed? I didn't hear any laughter. He knew what she had thought in her heart. And we'll see in the later half of the chapter that Abraham expresses no surprise about the intent of the men concerning Sodom and Gomorrah. All of this adds up to Abraham discerning right from the beginning that he was being visited by the Lord, or at least by heavenly messengers representing the Lord's presence to him. So that's the first thing to note, and and this will be important for us to remember next week uh, when we visit chapter 19 uh, and read about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I will remind you at this time that Abraham recognized these men to be the presence of God coming to him. The second thing worth noting here is the promise. As we have moved through the Genesis history, we have kept our eye on the promise. It began in chapter 3 in the garden after Adam and Eve's sin, where God promised that a seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. That promise was then narrowed to the line of Seth and then to Noah and Noah's son Shem and again with Abraham. With Abraham, the promise has gotten more extensive treatment. We've been given an increased number of details. The promised line is to come through Abraham and to be a blessing to the entire world. 
This will be accomplished by making Abraham's descendants a multitude, a great nation. And then we're told that it is to come through Abraham's wife, Sarah, not Hagar. Isaac will be the son of the covenant, not Ishmael. Then the promise took on even more specificity in chapter 17, verse 21, when God said, But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. So now we have the exact timing of when this promise will be kept. This promise is now renewed again in chapter 18, and we're told that Sarah, even though she is past childbearing age, will experience a renewal and will indeed have the promised son. In verse 10, it says, he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So even though it seems impossible, God stands by his promise And he will bring it to pass. It's been delayed a great number of years. But God continually reassures Abraham that he will keep his promise. And I think like Abraham, we need regular reassurance that God will keep his promises to us as well. He's promised us that he will return for his own. And that we will enjoy everlasting life with him in the new heavens and the new earth. 1 John 2.25, and this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. 2 Peter 3.13, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And we're warned that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. It's been delayed so long, surely God can't keep his promise at this point. But then we're reminded, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why does the Lord tarry? Because it is not yet the appointed time. There are still those that he intends to bring to repentance and salvation. And so we must wait, just as Abraham and Sarah had to wait. And when things look grim around us in the world, as they often do, we need to be reminded that God keeps his promises. And so we should not lose hope. It will happen as he has said it will, because the Almighty has decreed it, and he will bring it to pass. And so Abraham and Sarah are reminded and encouraged to continue in faith while waiting for the Lord's promise of a son. We must wait for the appointed time of the Lord's return, but wait with eager expectation that he will do what he has promised. Let's move now to the second half of the chapter, and we'll come back to this first part in a few moments and see how they're related together. Verse 16 transitions us away from the promise of Isaac and turns our attention toward Sodom and Gomorrah. Then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on their way. Verses 17 through 19 then share with us the Lord's thoughts. God holds counsel with himself and determines to reveal to Abraham what he is about to do in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. God gives two reasons why 
he should disclose his plans to Abraham. First, because of the imminent role that Abraham would play in being the father of a great nation who would inherit the land of Canaan where Sodom and Gomorrah are located. He says in verse 17 and 18, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Second, God reveals his plans because of the covenant that he has made with Abraham. He says in verse 19, For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Now, last week we considered the covenant and its signs, and we saw that God had commanded Abraham, saying, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And the covenant extended to Abraham's family and descendants. So in revealing to Abraham his plans to punish the wicked cities of the Canaanites, God intends Abraham to teach his household, his descendants, using this as an example and a warning to them to remain faithful to the covenant and to live holy lives. There would be no doubt when these cities were destroyed, it wasn't just some fluke accident. God had said beforehand that he was going to do this. This was the punishment of God upon the wicked, and it would serve as a warning to Abraham and his family after him. This instructs us in our duty as parents, as grandparents, and as Christians in general. We have the great privilege of knowing the will of God concerning sin and the threat of punishment against the wicked. This lays a grave duty on us to share this with our children, with our grandchildren, with all that we have any influence upon. The knowledge that we have from Scripture is not for us alone. It's not for our own private use. We are to be about the work of making disciples and teaching them all that he has commanded. But then you might ask and say, well, aren't we supposed to obey God because we love him and not because... We have this fear of his punishment. This is a negative example. God is about to destroy these cities. That's supposed to motivate us? I thought we were supposed to be motivated by love. Well, John Calvin comments on this idea saying, Those narratives which serve to inspire terror are useful to be known. For our carnal security requires sharp stimulants whereby we may be urged to the fear of God. And lest anyone should suppose that this kind of doctrine belongs only to strangers, that is to unbelievers, the Lord specifically appoints it for the sons of Abraham, that is, for the household of the church. For those interpreters are infatuated and perverse who contend that faith is overturned if consciences are alarmed. For whereas nothing is more contrary to faith than contempt and terpor, which is inactivity or lethargy, That doctrine best accords with the preaching of grace, which so subdues men to the fear of God that they, being afflicted and famished, may hasten unto Christ. So he's saying that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah benefits not only unbelievers, but also believers, because it stirs up within us a fear so that we don't give in to spiritual complacency but that we actively pursue righteousness and holy living. 
What he's talking about is what the reformers called the second and third use of the law. The first use of the law of God is to help order and establish our civil society and to restrain sin. The second use of the law is to make sinners aware of their sin and of the just punishment of God threatened against all those who violate his law. And so it drives us to Christ seeking mercy and grace outside of ourselves, which is found in the gospel alone. And that's what Calvin means when he speaks of this kind of doctrine belonging to strangers, to outsiders. Passages relating the wrath of God against sin are designed to move unbelievers to repentance and faith. But there is a third use of the law, and it is this to which Calvin refers when he says these doctrines are for the household of the church. The third use of the law is the sanctifying use. It provides guidance for believers as we seek to live in humble gratitude for the grace that God has shown us. We see the example of God's wrath poured out on sinners and know that we have received mercy when that wrath was justly something we deserved. And so it moves us in humble gratitude to live lives pleasing to our Father in heaven. And so for this reason, God reveals to Abraham what he is about to do concerning Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we read in verse 20 and 21, And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now verse 20 gives us the because. The sins of Sodom and Gomorrah were grave sins. Remember that we were told before in chapter 13 that the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Next week, we'll see just how sinful they are, but it is exceedingly wicked, gravely sinful. So there's an outcry that comes to the Lord because of their sin. We've seen that language before in Genesis 4 when Cain killed Abel. The blood of Abel cried out from the ground for God's justice. So here there is an outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wickedness. Verse 21 then tells us the Lord is investigating this outcry. It's not as if the Lord doesn't know. He is all-knowing. He knows the truth of the situation. So why does he investigate their sin in this way? Well, he does it for several reasons. First, it is to show us that his judgments are indeed just and warranted. God does not punish on a whim, arbitrarily or without cause. His justice is without fault. He is patient and long-suffering with sinners, but when he brings judgment on sin, it is just and right and good. Second, it serves as an example to us, to church leaders, to parents, to civil magistrates, to all who are in authority. It shows us that we who are not all-knowing as the Lord is have an even greater responsibility to be diligent in acquiring the truth of a situation before we render judgment. But there is a third purpose in this as well, one which we'll come back to in a moment. But I want you to notice the language echoed here from the episode with Babel. God says, I will go down now. And that reminds us of the judgment 
that God poured out on Babel, where men had sought to build a tower whose top would be in the heavens, and God came down to see it. It makes the point that God is exalted far above any government of the city of Sodom, any achievement of men in building a tower, and his holiness is far above their sinfulness. What a picture of God is given to us in this chapter. He is transcendent and exalted far above all the earth, and yet he is near us, speaking with Abraham, revealing his secret counsel to his people. Psalm 25:14 says the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him and he will show them his covenant. Now at this point the men we are told depart for Sodom in verse 22. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. So Abraham continues to stand before God and have a conversation with him concerning the fate of the city of Sodom and its inhabitants. Now you'll remember Abraham has a vested interest in this. His nephew Lot lives in Sodom. And so Abraham has this conversation with God, beginning in verse 23. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Now this is a bold intercession that Abraham makes. God has revealed that the sin of this city is very grave, so much so that an outcry has come up against it, and God intends to destroy the city. That much is clear, and he has revealed it to Abraham. And yet, Abraham intercedes for the city on the basis of God's mercy and righteousness that he will not judge the righteous with the wicked. And so God answers him and says in verse 26, So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. If there are 50 righteous in this wicked city, God will spare all for the sake of 50. Abraham then continues to intercede multiple times, asking mercy for smaller and smaller numbers until he arrives at 10 in verse 32. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. Now, as we'll see next week, 10 is a significant number. There's a reason that Abraham went to the number 10, having to do with Lot and his family. But this narrative here and Abraham's continued intercession for Sodom serves as a lesson for us concerning intercessory prayer. Abraham prayed six times, each time pleading for the Lord's mercy for a smaller and smaller number of people, and each time the Lord agrees This should serve as a lesson to us as we intercede for our nation and for the society in which we live. The wickedness of our nation is exceedingly great, and I'm sure there's an outcry before the Lord because of the sins that have been committed in the United States. Millions of babies have been slaughtered in our lifetimes by means of abortion on the altar of convenience and selfishness. Sexual perversion is celebrated and encouraged in our culture, even among our youth. 
Violence may be decried at times in the news media, but it's glorified in Hollywood. Our entire culture is given to the pursuit of the lusts of the flesh, sex, food, leisure. We'll deal more with Sodom next week, but consider what the Lord says regarding the sins of Sodom in Ezekiel. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Now, if that doesn't sound like modern-day America, I don't know where you're living. But let us learn from this. Let us learn from this example of Abraham's intercession that we should get on our knees before the Lord and plead for his mercy on our country for the sake of his people who still dwell here, no matter how small that number might be. This is the obvious application of this passage But how does this work together with the first half of the chapter? Well, for that, we need to know what these two narratives share in common. And the key to figuring that out is to look at the questions that are asked in each of these narratives. Earlier, we examined two reasons that God said he would go down and investigate the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, to show us that his judgments are just and to serve as an example of what just judgment looks like, that we would not be hasty in our own judgments. But I said there was a third purpose. That third purpose is to reveal something about God as God. Look with me again at verse 21. And I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. God will know the truth. God knows the righteous from the wicked. And so Abraham asks a rhetorical question in verse 25. He says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Well, of course he will, because he knows the righteous from the wicked. This is a theme that is carried throughout the scriptures. God knows the heart. He knows who is wicked, who is unrepentant, who is embracing their sin, and he knows those whose hearts have turned towards him in repentance, seeking forgiveness and sanctification to live holy lives before him. He knows. For the Lord does not see as a man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. 2 Chronicles 6, verse 30. Solomon writes and says, For you alone know the hearts of the sons of men. Will God rightly punish the wicked and spare the righteous? Well, of course he will. As David would later write in the Psalms, Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. So as Abraham appeals to God in intercessory prayer, he assumes the whole time that God knows who is righteous and who isn't. As he asks for smaller and smaller numbers, will you destroy the city if you find 10 righteous people there? He assumes that God can tell the difference, that God would know the 10 righteous from the rest who are unrighteous because God can discern the hearts of men and enact right judgment. Now look at the question in the first part of the chapter. Go to verse 12. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, 
Shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? Abraham's question was rhetorical. He knew the answer, and he assumed the answer was yes. God would judge justly and do what is right. Sarah, on the other hand, assumes the answer is no. No, she can't have a child. It's impossible at this point. She's too old. But the Lord answers her and says, And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? So God has asked a rhetorical question of his own. Is anything too hard for the Lord God Almighty? Well, of course not. He's God. If there is anything too hard for him, he would not be the Almighty God. God who took the dust of the ground and formed it into a man and breathed into it the breath of life. Can that God cause an old woman to have a child? Yes. Can God tell the righteous from the wicked and save the one and punish the other? Yes. But notice again Sarah's response. She lies in an attempt to cover up her question. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. But he said, no, but you did laugh. And she says she didn't laugh. She didn't question the power of God in disbelief. But God says she did. And he tells us why she lied. Because she was afraid. John Calvin says, we must observe whence this fear suddenly entered the mind of Sarah, namely, from the consideration that God had detected her secret sin. So there's our connection. Both of these narratives in this chapter are focused on this one idea that God knows the hearts of men. God knows that Sarah laughed in her heart. God knows the righteous from the wicked. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. Abraham didn't know that Sarah had laughed within herself, but God did. The heart of man is quite beyond our capacity to know, but it is laid bare before an all-knowing, all-seeing, almighty God. The prophet Jeremiah records and says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. The Lord knows the heart. We see this in the New Testament as well. As Jesus confronts the Pharisees with their hypocrisy at one point, he says to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. This is an uncomfortable truth for Sarah. It frightened her to realize that God knew her secret thoughts. It should be sobering for us as well. Sin starts in the inner person and works its way out into our actions, but even that thought can be sinful if we entertain it. We know this from Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. We see it in our text this morning that these thoughts that we keep to ourselves, God knows them. He knows. He sees It's not hidden from him. His discernment is perfect. His sight is clear and his judgment is just. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. He can discern the thoughts and intents of your heart and he knows the righteous 
from the wicked. You might think with Sarah, well, this is a terrifying idea. God knows every wicked and sinful thought I've ever had, and he judges justly. What am I to do? The Apostle John asks this question in his first epistle, and here is his answer. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. God is greater than our heart. His grace is greater than our sin. His mercy is greater than our wickedness. The apostle goes on to add, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. But I thought that was the point. Our hearts condemn us because we harbor these secret sinful thoughts that God knows. How then can we do those things that are pleasing in his sight? How can we keep his commandments when even our thoughts violate his holy law? The apostle continues in the next verse and says, And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. God's grace is greater, and what is required of us is that we should believe on the name of Jesus Christ, his Son. What was required of Abraham and Sarah was that they have faith in the promise. They had not yet heard the name, but they had the promise. And Hebrews tells us that they trusted in that promise. We have the name of Christ, and we are to believe on his name. The Savior who died in our place and whose righteousness is imputed to us when we believe so that we're counted righteous in God's sight. Then we can rest in him, knowing that, as John says earlier in the letter, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful. He keeps his promises. Just as he would keep his promise concerning his son to be born to Abraham and Sarah, so also he will keep his promise to give us eternal life. And he is just in doing so because by confessing our sins, we are showing our reliance is not on ourselves, but on his mercy and grace shown to us in Christ Jesus who died in our place. The sins of those who believe have been punished Justice has been served, and so God is just in forgiving our sins. He doesn't just sweep sin under the rug and ignore it. He punishes it fully in the death of Christ and accomplished our salvation. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. He can discern the thoughts and intents of the heart, and he knows the righteous from the wicked, and he saves all those who believe for the sake of one righteous person, the Lord Jesus Christ. God knows all things, John said. Yes, he knows our hearts, but he also knows those who believe. Just like he can bring life to the barren womb of 90-year-old Sarah, he can also bring new life, the life of Christ, to the barren and sinful hearts of men. But only, as Calvin said earlier, only if they hasten unto Christ. For it is only in him that salvation is to be found. Only in him is there a refuge from the judgment of God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. 
He can discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. He knows the righteous from the wicked. He always does what is right, and he saves to the utmost. We can rest secure knowing that God himself, the judge of all the earth, the one who knows the righteous from the wicked, has accounted the perfect righteousness of Christ to us who believe. He knows those who are his, and he will keep his promise of salvation and an everlasting inheritance in glory. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. The judge of all the earth will do what is right. Let's pray.